I want you to take your Bible, please, today, and we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and if you're a guest with us today and perhaps you don't own a Bible, then I invite you to take one from the pew rack in front of you, and um, when I say take one, I mean take it home, and the page numbers for 1 Corinthians are on the screen behind me. To set up and kind of discuss what I want to visit with you about today from reading from 1 Corinthians 11, uh, we're talking about communion, uh, the moment when churches all around the world will eat some bread and some wine or some juice and drink it and, and do it in remembrance of Jesus. And um, I've got these things right here because, well, in, our, in the story of our family's life, communion has an interesting ex- experience for us and an ex- interesting story, namely that when the church was smaller and we would do one Christmas Eve service on the 24th of December, we could do things that we can't do these days simply because we have about 17,000 of them, it seems to me, on Christmas Eve. That's an exaggeration on my part. Did you know that? But nonetheless. Because of the numbers of people in the congregation these days, many people want to experience that Christmas service. So we have a lot of them and we're more worried or concerned, aware of how long the services can be and people flow and that sort of stuff. So before all that came into play, the services were longer and we always served communion on Christmas Eve and our kids loved it. And it wasn't until a few years in that we realized what was going on. We would do communion uh, on Christmas Eve by a method called intinction. Namely, Usually it was, initially it was Leslie and me standing right here, just as a couple by ourselves, and eventually it got to be two couples, then three couples, and it got beyond what we could do anymore. But it it was where somebody holds a cup like this, and then there's a big, instead of the little wafers that we use on the weekend right now, we'd have a big loaf of Hawaiian bread. You know that sweet bread? And it would cover the plate, and people would come and grab a piece off, and then they'd dip it in the cup and eat it that way. And that is called intinction in church circles, all right? So year after year, it took a few years for us to figure out what was going on here. The kids, when they're little, our daughter and son, would love that service. Why do you like that service? Well, here's why. Well, the service would come to an end, and Leslie and I would be greeting people and saying hello, and then... We'd be cleaning up in here, and it'd be close to midnight by the time we were done. And the kids would always disappear. You know why? Well, they'd take this and this, and they'd go back in the kitchen. And whatever was left of the Hawaiian bread, they'd be back there stuffing their mouths. (laughs) Preacher kids going, what have we got left over that we can eat? (laughs) And to this day, when we as a family get together and we want to declare a really sweet moment, instead of serving bread rolls, we'll serve Hawaiian bread, and it reminds us of this moment, and it reminds us of sweet life. It's one of the stories that we have as a family. Today, I want to look at one of the stories that surrounds this event called communion and see what we can learn together see where we can find the sweetness in it. Maybe a little bit, if you will, of that, if you so-called Hawaiian bread. Look with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, a very familiar passage of scripture. Paul the apostle is writing sometime after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. In other words, this has come to me. I learned about this. I wasn't there, but I'm telling you, this is what happened. The Lord Jesus, 
on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul makes this statement. That whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, what happens? You're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Now, we're looking at this meal that Jesus had with his disciples. It was on the, in, in, in the context of where they had it, it was called the Passover meal. It was just a few hours before Jesus was arrested. And he's sitting with his disciples and they're all together. And frankly, he's sitting with a bunch of men. We think mostly men, maybe only men, probably 13 of them all told, plus whoever was serving them. Some group of guys gathered. You would say they were all sinners, wouldn't you? Apart from Jesus. And it's really the culmination of this series that we've been looking at over the last few weeks called Eats with Sinners. Because Jesus ate with sinners all the time. And we've looked at a lot of those scenarios where he ate with people or where he told about eating with people. And it really reflects the reason that Jesus came. And we want to follow up with that. And the goal of this series is in many ways to set us up for what happens next week. For us to be reminded that... Well, the story of Jesus is that he came for people who don't know him. As a matter of fact, he himself said in, in Luke chapter 19 that the Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. Came to talk and bring people who are far from God to God. And in doing so, the best way he could do that was to hang out with people who were far from God. Sinners like me, like I suppose you, and he did it so often that it actually essentially ruined his reputation among the religious and the self-righteous people of his day. He himself says that, you know, that the people think of me, if you will, in Matthew 11 as somebody who hangs out with drunkards and with sinners and tax collectors and people who, tax collectors in that culture were very evil people and we'll talk about that yet today. And so in the eyes of the self-righteous, this business of him hanging with sinners ruined his reputation. And so we have this title thus, Eats with Sinners, and where we're headed next weekend. If you think about it, this case in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he was hanging out with some less than desired company. Can I remind you, look in Luke chapter 22 and see how Luke records the event. Luke goes out again after the event and does some research, asks some people what happened on that night. And he gives us this story in Luke chapter 22, verse 7, outlining how it all came to be. These less than desirable characters that are sitting around the table with Jesus. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. And he replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, here's the key for us today. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined, <coughs> excuse me, 
reclined at the table. <coughs> a bunch of guys, a bunch of guys literally sat down at the table and um, they wanted to know what he was going to say. This um, fellow they'd been following was somebody they'd been hanging out with for three years. This is after what we call the triumphal entry, you know, back a few days prior to this event in Luke 22. Jesus had come into the city and everybody had been, I mean, it was a political furor of how excited everybody was of how this new guy was coming to town and was going to take on the Romans and everything. And so they're sitting there, these disciples post all of that and going, okay, what's going to happen next? This is a big meal for us. And they're completely unaware that within just a few hours, their world is going to be turned upside down. Jesus is going to be arrested and crucified, executed. As they're sitting around that table, there are quite some people there with him. I guess you could say that the list of characters and personalities, well, some of them are pretty sorted. I mean, you've got Matthew sitting there. We know he's there. He's one of the disciples. Matthew had been a tax collector. Tax collectors were viewed with great suspicion in that day. After all, they were Jewish men who were in consort with the Roman occupiers. They were in bed with the Romans, you could put it that way. The Romans said, we want to get this much money in taxation. It's your responsibility to get it. And we don't care to wipe by what means you get it. As a matter of fact, if you get more than that, you keep the difference. And so from the perspective of the other Jewish people, I mean, these guys were traitors. And yet one day, Jesus had come to Matthew and said, give up that life of criminality and join me. Can someone with that kind of background come and be at the table of Jesus Christ? Can someone be like that, be with Jesus? I mean, there are other people there as well. You got someone like Peter. What do you know about Peter? A rather angry and impetuous fellow, kind of always putting his foot in his mouth and, you know, being violent and angry at the wrong moment regularly. As a matter of fact, look in Luke 22 again, where toward the end of the meal, Luke 22, verse 28, Jesus is talking to everybody and says, you are those who have stood by me in my trials and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, that's Peter, Peter, Peter. Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And Peter goes, <laughs> you're an idiot. I'm going to walk with you all the way. I mean, here's the Son of God, divine, telling this man, you're going to mess up. And the guy saying, I'm not going to mess up. I don't care what you know. I'm not going to mess up. Foot and mouth. But very quickly, within just a few hours at the arrest and going into the trial of Jesus, Peter does, in fact, deny Jesus. I mean, as a matter of fact, when you get to John 18, as the arrest of Jesus is occurring, Peter very impetuously takes a sword that he has, and as the group of soldiers come to get Jesus, included in that group is a fellow by the name of Malchus. Malchus is the servant of the high priest. And Peter just takes his sword and lops off the guy's ear. 
Luke says that Jesus says, don't do that. And Jesus actually heals Malchus' ear. You got this guy who is just always on edge. It takes nothing to tip him all over and for him to lose it. I'd ask the staff to help me put uh, together these slides and, and say, can you find some portraits of some of these apostles I want to talk about this week? And this one of Peter cracks me up. Because, he, I mean, if you were to put a caption beside that, knowing that he's angry and he puts his foot in his mouth all the time, what would the caption be? Was that only in my head or did I just really say it out loud? <laughs> right? Isn't that why? I love that. I mean, oh, good Lord, did I really say that? I'm sorry, God. Is someone like that allowed at the table to be with Jesus? There's another fellow at the table. In many ways, probably the most, um, the most sensible guy in the group, perhaps. Probably the bookkeeper of the group. Guy that always said, how are we going to do this? How are we going to pay for it? How are we going to manage this stuff that's coming our way? Do you know his name? Judas. He gets a bad rap, legitimately so. But is it feasible that he just wanted to figure out how we're going to take things, care of things? And they get there and he goes, oh, I can manage everything. And yeah, I'll give Jesus up, but I'll get some money for it. That's maybe what he was thinking. And I'll just take care of it all. And things got out of hand, didn't it? Pretty quickly after he realizes, hey, I'll give Jesus up. They'll pay me for that. And then we can use that funds or whatever. He realizes things are out of hand and that Jesus is going to be executed. So what did Judas do? He went and committed suicide in a field just outside of Jerusalem. That field is still there today. You can stand at the edge of the southern wall of the city, the old city of Jerusalem, and you can see that field where no one has dared to construct anything on it for the last 2,000 years for fear that they may be building on the blood of Judas and thus saying the wrong thing. Does a traitor, thoroughly confused to the point of suicide, get to be at the table with Jesus? There's another guy there. His name is John. He and his brother were some of the early disciples of Jesus. They were the sons of Zebedee, sometimes known as sons of thunder. You read between the lines at times and read, and read various accounts of John throughout the Gospels and I have this sense that he was a, a guy who was always wanting a little bit more recognition. Probably had an ego that just didn't quite match up and he, hey, will somebody please notice me? As a matter of fact, in Mark chapter 10, we have a story of where he and his brother come to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, we know you got this kingdom thing coming up and we're wondering, uh, could you give us a little recognition in the process? As a matter of fact, could, could we sit on either side of you? And... Uh, just that way people will know us and recognize us. And John, again, reading between the lines on my part, you read the Gospel of John, and he's always talking about love and the need to love one another. And, be, and fair enough, but I just think, here's a guy that was always looking for a little bit of extra attention. Little, little, his cup wasn't full on the love side, and he's looking for love at all, maybe in all the wrong places. I'll tell you this. 
the guy who painted that portrait, if that's what John was looked like, really, he needed a little more love, if you're asking me. <laughs> Absolutely. Another fellow at the table is a bit of a wallflower in some ways. We don't know a lot about him. His name is Andrew. Scripture hardly mentions him at all, except in John chapter 1, we're told that Andrew is one of the very first who discovers Jesus. And he runs off to his brother Peter and says, hey, Peter, let's follow this guy. We found the Messiah. And sure enough, that's what happens. This guy who is not mentioned again with any story whatsoever in scripture, you could say is the guy who started it all. He's the guy who said, hey, Peter, let's go see who Jesus is. Now, admittedly, Peter was angry and impetuous from time to time. But on the other hand, Peter was the guy who was the driving force behind the disciples. And particularly after Jesus' resurrection and ascension to heaven, it was Peter who kind of got the group organized and did some of that early ministry in the city of Jerusalem and helped organize the all the disciples, and as the ministry grew and as the church grew, Peter was right there at the very helm of it all. But you gotta go back one step from there, and who do you see who made all that happen in the first place? Andrew, Andrew the wallflower, guy who fades off in the distance. He's the guy who's just kinda making sure that can I guide all this and work it out right? I looked at that. That portrait too. Yeah, he's tired. He's tired of the whole. Man, it's, it's tough keeping. Well, what would be the caption you'd put by that? I'm so tired of taking care of Peter and the rest of this motley crew. Isn't that what wallflowers say? But they don't dare tell it out, say it out loud. Does somebody who's a wallflower get to come and be with Jesus at the table? Here's the truth, friends. All kinds of people with all sorts of stories get to be with Jesus Christ. All sorts of stories are invited to the table. You know why? Because Jesus eats with sinners. We started this series a few weeks ago when I was um, thinking about all this. And I, I, I said, let's start the series. And I showed you a bunch of photographs of restaurants around town. Do you remember that? And this week I was reflecting on that and thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to go to one of those restaurants this week and um, do some research to find out what stories might be in one of those restaurants. So I went to Paul's. You guys know where Paul's is, right? Close to downtown. And so in, in the spirit of research, I went and I ordered a cheeseburger fries and chocolate shake. If I hadn't been doing research, I would have had a salad, but since I was doing research, I had to do it the way they do it at Paul's. And so I walked in the room and I sat down at a booth, and I'm not kidding you when I say this was the setup in the booth right there. And <laughs> I mean, this was, it, it was perfectly like that. And um, the waitress came over, and since the, the bench on the other side, the seat on the other side was empty. She just sat in it. I'm thinking, whoa, this is pretty familiar, but that's kind of a familiar place, right? So she sits down and says, what would you like? I said, I'd like a cheeseburger, fries, and chocolate shake, because I was doing research. I wanted to see what it was like. And I said, in addition to that, um, 
I'm here to um, I'm here to do a little research. I'm preaching this week about stories of people who gather around tables. Would you mind if I talk to any of your, to some of your clients and your customers? She says, oh, no problem whatsoever. As a matter of fact, talk to that guy over there. And she pointed to a guy who was sitting up at the counter on one of those round stools, an older gentleman. She said, his name is Richard. You can go visit with Richard. And so I went and I sat beside Richard. And it was Richard, me, another guy on the other side of Richard, an empty stool and another guy down there. And I said, sat down and said, hey, Richard, my name is Wayne and I'm a, I'm a pastor and I'm working on a sermon for, that's coming up. And um, I want to know a little bit about your story. Just help me to get a sense of who it is that eats at tables like what you have at Paul's. He said, oh, I'm in my 80s. I, w- I, I served in the Korean War. And I've been coming to Paul since either 1945 or 1946. I can't remember. That's a long time to go to Paul's every day. He says, I come most days. And with that, it was amazing how the level of noise in the restaurant had dropped dramatically because they could tell I was doing something and they all wanted to hear what Richard had to say. And so he said, I've been here since 1945. The waitress down the other end says, yeah, we're having our 70th anniversary next year. 70 years of doing business in that same location with the same tables, I think. I love it. I love it. Okay? And, and the John, who's, there's a stool in John right there. John interrupts and says, oh yeah, we all come here every day. He said, if you don't come here, it's like not going to church on Sunday. What do you mean, John? <laughs> he said, if you don't go to church on Sunday, there's something off kelter all week long. And so... I go to church every week, but I also go to Paul's every day, and it just, it's, it's the rhythm of my life. Richard began to tell us stories. He said, you know, when I was in Korea, we went to church every day, and there were all kinds of different guys who would lead those church services. Sometimes it was Roman Catholic, sometimes it was a Protestant of all kinds of different tribes or stripes, and he says, we never worried about who was leading. So because when you're sitting in a box of shell casings all day and you're getting fired at, all you want to know, can that guy make heaven a little closer? Hmm. He said, I spend half my time here in, Flor- in Indicator and the other half of each year in Florida, and I'm going to Florida real soon. And you know what's going to happen this winter? When all these guys around in this restaurant, when they are taking their vacations in Florida, they show up at my doorstep and they say, can I spend the night? I'm really glad for them to come. He said, I've talked to preachers before, and I have some questions for you, Mr. Preacher Man. I thought, oh, here we go. (laughs) Now he's doing his research. And he looked at me and he said, Preacher, I had another preacher tell me one time that there are no women in heaven. I said, what? (laughs) I said, I hope there are ladies up there have every expectation there are women up there. He says, another thing I want to talk to you, I want to talk to you about screens in worship. I'm thinking, oh no, I'm going to catch it here. Here's this guy in his 80s who is going to have some regret or some complaint about these screens like we have behind us. He said, fascinating. He said, I think all churches should use them. I'm going, whoa, that's kind of unusual for a guy in his 80s to be saying. He says, otherwise, he said, here's my experience. By the time they announce the hymn and I fumble through the hymnal to find it and I finally find it, they've gone on to the next hymn already. (laughs) 
He said, those screens make it way easier to actually worship. Worship. Great. Great thinking, contemporary guy. So he said to me, my favorite verse in scripture. I mean, it's just flowing out of this guy. You have a favorite verse? Yeah, I do. He says, go forth and multiply. <laughs> now, if you're unfamiliar with scripture, that's the, um, and he knows I'm telling these stories, by the way. Okay, so that's the passage in scripture where in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve are formed, God says, go have families. And so Richard says, yeah, my favorite verse in scripture, go forth and multiply. I said, why is that? He said, well, because it means you get to go make babies and that's okay, isn't it? <laughs> you know, preacher man, the world seems quite topsy-turvy these days. Why is that, Richard? He said, well, I can't figure it out. You know, we have these funerals where soldiers die and we've got a church picketing them around the country. He says, yes, that's, uh, churches shouldn't do that. He says, and then on the other hand, we've got motorcycle gangs who go and protect the soldiers. He said, it's topsy-turvy. Normally it's the motorcycle gangs doing the wrong thing and the church doing the right thing. And why is it now the church is doing the wrong thing and the motorcycle gangs are doing the right thing? It's a reasonable question, isn't it? I know all the books of the Bible. You do? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. I stopped them. I'd kind of heard it before. <laughs> they said, how come you know those? He said, when I was little, we had to memorize the books of the Bible. I've never forgotten. Great stories, aren't they? Great stories. Preacher man, I got a great family. I got, I've got 12 great grandchildren and two more on the way. You've got 12 and you're going to have 14? Yeah, yeah. My granddaughter, she's a great girl. She's a great girl. She's got a wonderful husband. They have four daughters. And they, he says, I'm thinking that they were thinking they should have one more baby and they might get a son. So sure enough, she turned up pregnant. You're never going to guess what happened. She's having twins. And they're both girls. <laughs> and I looked at him. I said, Richard, is Stephanie Campbell your <laughs> granddaughter? You know Stephanie? <laughs> I said, yeah, Stephanie and Dave go to my church. He goes, you're from First Christian Church? I've been there. I got a question for you folks that only you can answer. Since I went there and did research and you've had such a lovely moment in my research and I had to pay for my cheeseburger, fries and chocolate shake, can I put that on my expense allowance? <laughs> Here's what I want you to hear, friends. Stories, your story, Richard's story, Matthew's story, Peter's story, Andrew's story, even Judah's story is welcome at the table. Because the table is a place for sinners. You're welcome here. You may be impetuous and known to speak far too quickly, just like Peter. You may be like Matthew, with a criminal background. You may be like John, looking for love, and you've looked in all the wrong places. Or you may be like Richard, a man with a story of life and family, and moments when you go, I just hope that guy helps me stay a little closer to heaven. 
all of you are welcome at this table of sinners. And I'll meet you here because I'm one of you. I'm a Christ follower. I walk after Jesus Christ, and so consequently I know my sins are forgiven. And if you could say I'm on the path to redemption while I am redeemed, and that's probably another theological discussion. But I must admit that even as a Christ follower, I'm a sinner. I mess up from time to time, and I do put my foot in my mouth from time to time. But as a follower of Christ, I have to say, well, I, I want to do what Jesus said, and I want to care about the things that, G that God cares about because we can't say we care about God without caring about what God cares about, and we know that God cares about people, so I want to care about people. What does that mean in the context of the table? Well, hang with me and see if you can understand this. The moment that we have every weekend called communion is a big moment for us. It's a moment that is, is uh, celebrated and observed in churches all around the country, all around the world. Congregations will gather and they'll have communion this weekend. In the Roman Catholic Church, it's the highest point of the, of the Mass, where the Eucharist is served to the members of the body of Christ in those congregations. In Protestant churches, it's called communion, or it might be called a variety of different things, but in each case, we're doing something that Jesus told us to do. We read in, in 1 Corinthians 11, where Jesus said, eat this in remembrance of me, drink this in remembrance of me. And we have great passion in following what Jesus told us to do. Because if we're a Christ follower, we're going to say, I'm going to do what Jesus said to do. And he said to remember me. So we each week in this church, we remember what Jesus did and we do it with great intentionality and say, we're going to be very, very conscious in the way in which we do that. But I do have a question for you about that. Since we're willing to eat and drink because Jesus told us to do that, here's another question. Are we also willing to do the other things that Jesus said with great passion as well? Like to be careful before we throw stones at sinners when Jesus said, he who is without sin cast the first stone? Or are we just as passionate when it says that we should love our neighbors as ourselves I mean, hey, I want communion. I better have communion this week. But about my neighbors, oh, whatever. Does the, doesn't there seem to be some disconnect there? Or when Jesus, after his resurrection, right before he went to heaven, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and convert people. Are we just as passionate about that as we say, I want my time with God in communion? That stuff about converting other people, well, that's for those who have the gift of evangelism. Why don't we follow Jesus' instructions in every area that he gave us with the same passion that we have about gathering at his table? Something to think about. That's why, frankly, we as a church, we're, gonna be, we're very intentional about what's taking place next weekend. Did you see this in your bulletin, in your program? We want you to use this. Because if you have, as a follower of Christ, if you have great passion about saying, I want to be certain I get my time around the table, I want to bring my story to the table, then shouldn't you be just as passionate about saying, I want my family members and my friends to know something about Jesus Christ. Well, I'm not suggesting that you have to convert them. Jesus Christ will do that through the work of his Holy Spirit. And I know it's awkward. I know it's awkward. You know, that's why this, in the coming months, in the coming weeks, 10 days from now, 
Join us on a Wednesday night at our Equip when Pastor BJ, one of the classes that's offered is called Inviting Friends on a Spiritual Journey. And seriously, I want you to take that. If you, if you, have, some, if you have some stress about what does it mean to bring people to Jesus and invite them on that journey. And seriously, next week, here's what's gonna happen. We're not gonna do an altar call and make things really awkward or anything like that. We are gonna invite people though onto a spiritual journey where we'd say, hey, come and hang out with us over the next few months and see if God might want to do something in your life. As people who are the hosts of that, can I invite you to think how to be guest friendly? Park further away if you can, all right? If you can walk. Don't be so sold on that you have to sit in your seat because let's hope somebody else is sitting there, okay? And reach out your hand to the people you don't know and say, hey, I'd like to meet you. The focus of what I'm going to bring to you next week is for all of you, come on home. We're going to look at the prodigal son. I'm just going to say, come on home. Come on home to a journey with us to discover what it means to be people of Christian faith. And maybe you're not even a Christian yet, I'll say. But we want you to learn something. We want you to experience what we're experiencing today, this sense of, man, I get to bring my story to the table. Because that's what they did. And it was they Luke chapter 22, verse 14 again. We read this, that when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. It was a group. It was a community. Thirteen guys have been traveling around the country together for some three years or so. And they get together at the table and they don't realize the implications of all that's about to occur in the next 48 to 72 hours. Jesus did but they did it in community. Sometimes I'm concerned that we take our communion moments as this quiet moment between me and God, and I get it. But in some ways, that's not really reflective of what we see in scripture. Scripture was these guys gathered around a table together with all of their stories saying, we're coming to Jesus. And so in light of that today, I wanna switch up the way in which we're handling communion because we're not gonna have communion next week. I want us to do communion today in an act of community together. Yeah, you'll have some quiet moments with God, but I'm going to lead you through a moment of communion together as a community. If you're serving communion, go and prepare for it right now because here's what's going to happen, friends. When the elements are past your way today, I don't want you to take them as a solo individual artist, okay? I want you to take the, the wafer and hold it. I want you to take the cup and hold it. And um, Eliana, one of the young people from our church who's been in our worship arts community, or worship arts academy, pardon me, is going to sing and bring us even further into the presence of God. And as she does that and leads us there, hold that, those elements, that bread and that cup. And then together in community, we're going to read some scripture, we're going to pray, we're going to eat, and we're going to drink together, acknowledging, hey, all of us are bringing this, these stories to the table. And all of us are hoping and praying that in the weeks and months ahead, there can be some more stories coming our way and more stories coming to the table. The stories of people who are gonna know Jesus Christ in the days ahead because we're gonna approach um, this business of going and making disciples with as much passion as we have about gathering at his table. So as the servers come, Hold the elements, okay? And listen and experience the presence of God in community together.